Morning. Good to see you guys. <clears throat> well, we've got uh, got a lot of sickness going on right now. We got some traveling going on right now with some people that are out and about. But it's good to see you guys. I'm glad you're here. Um, good to be here as we are in week two of our marriage series uh, on kingdom marriage. And so glad that uh, we are getting to work on our marriages together. All right? Everybody okay with that? Okay, everybody survived week one. <laughs> uh, we're doing all right. I, I t- typically know that um, I can tell when we're hitting on something that is really important and significant to God and to the kingdom and to, to growing forward uh, when I feel the spiritual opposition. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, you just feel like um, the difficulty uh, rise in your spirit when you know you're hitting on something that God is really trying to, to bring some breakthrough, and, uh, and so even just personally this week, I felt really attacked by the enemy, a uh, real sense of just, you know, can be telling, telling my wife I can get discouraged, I can feel a little bit overwhelmed. Um, I think it's probably why historically um, spiritual leaders have been known for depression. Uh, you know, they, they, these, you think people that do, you know, preaching and teaching of the word would be like these superheroes, but they're not. Uh, they're just people like you, and when the spiritual opposition comes, you can continue to feel like kind of weighed by that. It weighs heavy on you. Even one of the greatest preachers of all time, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, he would take three years or three months every year uh, off and go somewhere alone away and write and uh, just get away from people and and try to get his heart right. And then you know he's one of the most prolific preachers and, and writers of all time uh, in church history, but he had to take time away and do that because spiritual opposition was so heavy when he brought the truth. Uh, to, to the forefront, and his, one of his mantras was, um, in preaching was, make a, a beeline for the cross, uh, that was really what he believed, is that the cross was a centerpiece of everything that we, we cling to as Christ followers, and so even as we're talking about marriage, uh, we're going we're gonna to do that, okay, because um, if we want to see marriage flourish and become what God intended, then we have to see that Christ is actually the center and not us. And, uh, and that what he's done is actually going to free us to experience, enjoy the marriage that he designed for us. So, um, as we just read Genesis 3, and uh, Russell prayed uh, already some things out of that that are so significant, uh, it is a heavy text, isn't it? It's also really weird. Um, anybody ran into a talking snake lately? <laughs> you know, it's kind of a weird one. Uh, some people have dismissed this passage as being mythological and you know, not actually literal, and other people are like, no, it's, it's literal, and, you know, at the end of the day, like, it doesn't change the fact that there are things in this text that are very uh, spot on, and they are uh, indicting the human heart with what we struggle with most, and we're going to talk about some of that today, because this really is the, the problem in marriage. Um, you know, it, I think it's, it's interesting um, how we talked about this a little bit last week. We want to, to to, to have good marriages. I think anybody who's married wants to have a good marriage. I don't think you get into marriage to say, oh man, I hope my marriage is bad, right? Nobody, nobody seeks out a bad marriage or wants to, to end their marriage and divorce. That's not what we get, get into this thing thinking. And yet, time and time again, we see uh, the struggles and we see the, 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 the problems emerge in marriage and we see the, 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 the failings that come. And even inside the church among Christian people, uh, there are many marriages that don't make it. Uh, that don't stay the course and finish the race. And, and this is not a, a time of heaping gr- 
you know, guilt and condemnation on people who've gone through that. We have people in this room who've experienced the pain and the heartache of being in a marriage that didn't make it. Um, and there's a lot of factors in that. And God sees all those things, and he is compassionate towards them. He is gracious towards them. Um, and he can redeem and restore even the most broken and messed up situations. And I'm thankful for that. And that doesn't always mean two people get back together and get remarried or that things like that happen, but it does mean that God can heal the hurts that are in our hearts that come. Because marriage puts you in a very vulnerable position, doesn't it? To be known in a way that no one else knows you is to be very vulnerable to hurt. And uh, I've thought about, you know, uh, just often this, this, this love, this, this word love, as we pursue to draw near to someone and to be vulnerable toward them, we are exposed. And they have the potential of really doing some damage to our hearts and our minds in that. But it's also in being vulnerable, it's also being exposed, that God can do a great work. And he can remind us that his love for us is not performance-based. And he can, he can show us through a person, not that they could ever be Jesus, because that's just not going to happen. But God can show us his love in some tangible ways, right? And that's one of the things that we hope for in marriage. And as you, maybe if you're single in the room and you're looking uh, forward to marriage, you're, you're hoping for, you're praying into a desire to be married one day, um, you know, one of the things that I encourage you to, as you're praying is like, God, prepare me to know how to, to love another person, even when it's, it's hard, even when it's sacrificial, even when it, when it means laying down my own agenda, my own desires. And, um, and, and I just, just, you know, it's a good prayer to be praying as you prepare because it's hard. Um, but again, it, it, is, it is really good and it is really sweet. So we're going to keep those things in tension. We don't want to get too far over here to say, oh man, marriage is terrible. You don't do it. Or not over here and say, oh, it's awesome. It's, you know, it'll always be great. It's so, it's so, so beautiful and easy. That's not the case, okay? So we have to keep both of those things in view. And uh, I was t- telling someone, actually I think it was our life group even on Wednesday night, that when uh, some of y'all know we, when we moved into our current house, we moved into a house that needed some remodeling. And we did some like major like tearing down walls and remodeling our house and getting it all, um, you know, kind of like we wanted it. And it was a total mess. It was a wreck. And we lived in the middle of all that. And uh, we won't do that again. Um, right, babe? Uh, and, but one of the things that, w- that we noticed is when we went into our bedroom, there was this big crack in the wall in our bedroom. And, uh, and, and so I saw the crack in the wall, and of course, we were like, we've we got to do something about that. Um, so we had a painter, his name was Oliver. He came and he like filled in the crack in the wall with some putty, and then he painted over it. And you know what happened about six weeks later? <laughs> the crack came back, right? And so we've talked about this. Uh, we've talked about this in several different settings that that's what happens, right? Is that if you just try to deal with the superficial issues of marriage, you're not going to fix what's really going on under the surface. And so in our lives, we don't want to just be, um, we don't, we're not just trying to like dress ourselves up to be better people, to be better human beings. We're not just trying to fix marriage by trying to get better at communication. I don't know if you guys have, um, you know, gotten on Amazon lately and typed in like marriage book, but it's insane the number of hits you'll get, right? The number of marriage books that are out there. Um, there there's, there's, there's literally millions of books available to you to work on your marriage. And I would say that most of them are tips and tricks on how to improve your communication, how to understand your spouse better, uh, you know, things that, that they have some value to them. I'm not saying that they're not 
without any value or they couldn't help a little bit. The problem is, is when you don't get to the heart level, you don't fix the real problem, right? And, and when you don't fix the real problem, that stuff just keeps coming back up. And then you get kind of disillusioned and you're like, well, maybe I just married the wrong person, right? And, uh, and so there's this way that the enemy voice works. And we're going to, again, even kind of speak into that a little bit. But being rude is a real problem in marriage, right? Uh, not knowing how to handle conflict is a real problem in marriage. Uh, blaming your spouse for things is a real problem in marriage. Uh, different perspectives on how to use money, how to spend your leisure time, how to parent your kids, how to manage work-life balance. Those are challenges you have to confront in marriage, right? So we're not dismissing those things. Those things are all important. But how do you confront those things? How do you work through those things? And while personal habits that were cute when you were dating that are now super annoying to you are real frustrations, right? Things like, oh, that's so cute. And then now you're like, man, if they do that one more time, (laughs) I am going to lose it, right? It's just the way that our human hearts work. This is reality for us. But those things aren't actually going to fix the problem by simply saying, would you, if you just stop that, everything would be great, you know? If you just see things like me, it would be great. I mean, how many of you guys are familiar with a, um, a man named Emerson Egrich, Dr. Emerson, Emerson Egrich and his wife? They wrote a book called Love and Respect. Some of you have actually read that. I've talked to some of you about it. Um, it's an interesting book where he breaks apart Ephesians chapter 5 um, section on marriage, which there's really three primary texts in the Bible that speak solely to marriage. There's not a book of marriage. We talked about that last week, but there are some passages that are lengthier on marriage, and one of them is Ephesians 5, which we're going to teach next week. We're going to talk about beautiful picture of marriage. One of the things he says as he's describing the differences between male and female, some of the challenges that we face is that all women have pink glasses and pink urinates. And what he's trying to say is that there's a way that you see and hear things as a lady, that that's just, that's how God's made it. And then there's way that men have blue hearing aids and blue glasses and you see things in a particular way because you're a male and those things aren't going to get fixed, right? You're just going to have those differences. That's reality. So again, the goal isn't, well, man, if I could just get my spouse to see it and hear it like I would, then it would fix everything. No, because you're still, there's still some broken things in there, right? There's still some, some sin in there that needs to be dealt with. So that said, as we look at Genesis chapter 3, um, this is the middle of the three weeks that we're spending together. Last week, we looked at the purpose of marriage um, and really kind of kept it at this, like we know that everything exists for the glory of God, for the fame of God. We, we, we have breath, we have life because we exist for the, for the glory of God, to make him known, to reflect his image. We were all created in his image, okay? And within that, he's created marriage as this beautiful opportunity to enjoy friendship and intimacy and a depth like none other, to, to enjoy friendship, to enjoy partnership, to actually like work alongside of a person, to, you know, have children and to do something meaningful and purposeful with our lives that God's called us to. And we said, you know, like, Marriage is two sinful people who come together to accomplish God's calling and work in their, in, in their lives. And it's, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also, again, still hard. But we also said that marriage is about discipleship, that we get to help our spouse, they get to help us look more and more like Jesus. Like, that's, that's the goal. And I don't think the culture's really speaking that in, <laughs> saying, yeah, the goal is for you actually to help each other to be conformed into the image of your creator. And that, that's what we, are, we see in Scripture lay out for us is that we have this opportunity to do that. And just men in the room who are married men or men who aspire to be married, 
We are called to be the leaders in that. We're not called to be the bystanders. We're not called to be the ones who take a back seat and say, okay, tell us what we're going to do, you know, wife. No, we're called to lead to, by servant leading, by, by, by humility, by graciously loving and taking the first step towards, towards showing us um, where we're supposed to be doing as we follow Jesus. So in that, um, when we look at Genesis chapter 3, we see these challenges that emerge in the human heart that are still <laughs> wreaking havoc today, to say the least. And so in this, uh, the reality is marriage is difficult because we live in a sinful, broken world, and we are sinners. That's just to put all the chips on the table, right? We live in a sinful, fallen world, and we are sinners. And this Genesis chapter th- 3, which is sandwiched between chapters 1 and 2, where you get this beautiful picture of God's creation, and chapter 4, where in the first family, if anybody needs encouragement today, I, don't, I know it's kind of a weird way to be encouraged, but in the first family, there was jealousy and murder. I mean, right out of the gate, human hearts, right? But in the middle between this beautiful garden of perfection and jealousy and murder, we find chapter 3, which explains how we got there. And what we notice is that there were some factors at play. There was an enemy afoot, and there was work going on to undermine God's goodness and his design. And we still see that today. We still experience that today. Satan's initial approach in this passage, which, again, it is a little bit odd. Here's this uh, serpent, and, it, and it, d- it doesn't give us much detail here, by the way. In fact, it doesn't even say it's the devil here. It just says there was a serpent. Later on, we find out he's, he's referred to as the devil. We're told he is the devil. But he's, he's there on the scene, and he's talking to Eve, and he is beginning with a mocking question. Uh, not to, to outright deny God, but to undermine God's goodness and his authority and his, his blessing, his, the, his, intent, his heart for people. And, and he says, you know, did God say, did God say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Like, he's, he's already trying to say, like, why would God do that to you? Like, what kind of God would do that to you? You ever heard that voice before in your head? What kind of God would keep me from having fun? What kind of, kind of God would, would keep me from being happy? What kind of God would restrict me from something I know is going to bring me joy? Right? That's, that's the question that comes from the enemy, and it came to Eve that day. And here's the reality is that what's undermining our marriage, because our marriage, marriage uh, we may be in or we even hope to be in one day, is in the context of this broader story that God is writing, but in the, in the scope of human history. And within this, there's this place where we are confronted with what do we believe about God, what do we believe about ourselves, and how are we supposed to live in light of that. And the first place when things really start to break down is in this area of dis- being deceived. And the Bible talks about it over and over and over again, being deceived, believing lies. We don't have enough time to unpack all that today. We're just barely getting to it. But you guys probably know of a verse in John chapter 8 where Jesus is speaking there, and he says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That's right. But why do you need to know the truth to be set free? Because our default mode is to believe lies. 
to believe lies about God, to believe lies about ourselves, and to believe lies about what's ultimately going to bring us happiness and human flourishing. And it's interesting how this deception starts to take root quickly in our flesh. We believe the lie that God is not really good, that he's not really for us, that his way is not best, and it starts to erode at his glorious image that he has put on our lives. You know, for Eve, it was a process there. We're born right into it, right? In this side of the fall, when we are born, I don't have to teach my kids to sin. We'll get, when we get to the parenting series, we'll talk more about this, right? But you don't have to teach a kid to sin. Kids, you guys are awesome. We love you. You are a blessing, but you're sinners, right? And you were born sinners. <laughs> and so no one had to teach you uh, to, to say no or mine or, or to get angry. Like that's just, it's, it's hardwired in you. But we begin early in this process of, of being deceived about what, who God is and, and, and is his heart really for us or against us. And we begin to believe those lies and it leads to broken relationship with God, but it also leads to broken relationship with others. And the reason, again, we have to start at this place is because we need to re realize, we have to understand that our, our marriage, this horizontal relationship is directly correlated with this vertical relationship. And some of you will know that, and we've talked about this before, but we, just, we, can't, we can't move past that reality that you aren't going to fix what's going on in your marriage until this gets fixed. Does that make sense? Okay, just make sure. And we'll talk more about that even next week as we look at how this, we have a power for marriage to, to be changed and to really experience what God intends. So when we believe this lie that God's not really good, that he's not worth submitting to, that he's holding out on us, he's restricting us, restraining us unnecessarily, or in some, has some sort of ill intent in that, then we begin to lie to ourselves, and we call that self-deception. And so one of the big issues that's behind marriage, conflict, and struggle is we're self-deceived. And we're going to talk about what some of the things we're self-deceived on. Um, the next thing, you know, and we could, again, talk about this story all day long, but you notice already that in this passage, if you've, if you've studied it before or if you even just in that quick reading, there's some things that if you have read in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, and the instruction that, that Adam was given by God, and by the way, make note, who was given the instruction not to eat from the tree? Adam? Okay, men? Who was given the instruction not to eat from the tree? Come on, guys. Come on now. Because why? Because guys were called to lead, right? Give instruction, responsibility, responsibility, accountability. And so here's Adam given this responsibility, given this instruction. And notice that already the enemy is adding to this thing. Uh, Eve is adding to this thing the, on top of the instruction given because trying to, again, erode trust in God. And you know what happens when you start to erode trust in God's goodness and his grace and his heart? You begin to think, you know what? I actually think I would be a better God than God. And so it moves from self-deception to self-rule. We actually think we're pretty good at running our lives. And actually, we're better at ruining our lives, right? Because we, we do tend to, when we start doing things our way and following our will, of course, 
things start to fall apart because we can't see what God sees and we have these ill motivations that are embedded in our hearts. And so notice what, what happens, of course, in this story is that it goes on from just simply did God say you can't eat from any tree to then she's saying you can't eat from it, you can't touch it, and then going on to the Satan, Satan outright lying. And I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the devil is real. Anybody? <laughs> the devil's real, and he is a liar. And the reality is, is the scripture tells us that his native tongue is lying. And that's what he loves to do. But he outright tells Eve in the story, no, you will not die. And notice what he says. In fact, God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be what? Like God. And we've been buying that lie ever since that day to think, you know what? Yeah, we actually, we actually probably know better than God. I, I think we see it more clearly than he does. He doesn't really get us. He doesn't really understand. He doesn't know how marriage works. He doesn't know how work works. He doesn't know how money works. He doesn't know what you name it. You fill in the blank, right? We have a better read on this. That is the nature of the human heart apart from God's rescue and redemption. And so we begin to believe a lie. We want self-rule. We want to be in charge. We actually think that we're good at it. And we're like, oh, man, I am such a good God, right? And then we see the wheels fall off, and we experience the pain, and we experience the heartache um, of that, of course. But we believe we know that what will make us, make us most happy. And all the while, every moment we begin to do that, we are going further and further into enslavement, further and further into slavery. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. How is pursuing to be God actually go into slavery because when you don't worship God you replace it with something else and whatever you replace it with that's what you're enslaved to right and so you begin to give your life your time your money your energy all of your things to that because you believe that's the way to be happy and that is actually what begins to hold you captive that's why I say that God is the only God he is the only idol you can worship that will actually give life to you instead of take it from you and that's a lie that we have to, uh, uh, the enemy tries to lie against that reality. And so we move from self-deception, then we move into self-rule, but then we move into self-indulgence. And that's where we just give ourselves permission to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. It's like, let's just go for this. We, we were, we're hedonistic in nature, right? And you notice that what does Eve do? Of course, she sees it, the fruit, and it says she sees that it was what? good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Anybody know what First John lays out for us in regards to the struggles of the human heart? Some of you, as soon as I say it, you're going to know it. He says this. He says, there's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You know what she just struggled with? Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Because that has been at the core of the enemy. He's not Let's be honest. The enemy is crafty, but he doesn't have to be that crafty. He really doesn't have to be that wise because we fall for the same things over and over again, right? It's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The things that we see and go, oh, that's, that looks good to me. I need that. The lust of the flesh. What are the, the, the longings of our hearts that we want to pursue? We think, man, if I can just get that. Or the, the pride of life. Like, again, hey, I'm awesome. I'm a good self-sovereign. 
I got this covered. And we begin to live that way all the while the enemy's hook is deeper and deeper, and it undermines the way of God is of work, work in our lives and wants to, to free us. And we are, cons- we are you know, pursuing instant gratification. We're chasing a feeling. We're chasing a high. Uh, we, we're looking for a way to get what only God can give us, but we're trying to do it in, on, in, in things that aren't available, in things that, aren't, uh, that, are, that can never deliver. And so that self-indulgence then leads us to an interesting place because God loves us too much to let us just be our own self-sovereign. And he pursues us. And if you're in Christ, if you know Jesus, if you've ever put your trust and your faith in Jesus and his Holy Spirit has come into you, there's this thing about the Holy Spirit that we love and hate, and that is that he is the convictor of sin, that he is the one who draws us back to truth when we get off base. In fact, Jesus said, when I leave, I'm going to send for you this paraclete, this helper is going to come alongside of you. And one of the things he's going to do is he's going to convict you of all sin. He's going to convict the world of sin. And sin at its core is really just my way over God's way. I mean, kids, you can simply remember what sin is. It's my way over God's way. When I just say, God, I want to do my thing, I don't want your thing, God. That's sin. And there's other complicated ways to talk about it, but that's a very simplistic way to think about it, right? And so we, we get to that place of self-indulgence, and we're just doing whatever we want, whatever makes us feel good, whatever makes us feel right. And we start to feel some of the consequences of that. And God graciously comes. And it is one of the funniest parts of this story um, that they actually think they can hide from God, right? It's the early morning of the, it says the, the man and the wife were heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening, actually, not the morning, I said morning, and they hid themselves from, from God among the trees of the garden, like, hey, man, if we hide behind these trees, God can't see us, right? It's one of the silliest things, um, and yet I think about how many things we try to hide behind, how often we try to hide from God, like he can't see what's really going on in our heads and our hearts. So as silly as I think it is for them, I just am confronted with my own foolishness, in that moment, and he says, I, um, he says, where are you, and notice also, he calls out to who, does anybody notice what's in there, he calls out to who, the man, you know who he's coming to hold accountable, Adam, he's saying, Adam, where are you, he didn't say Eve, where are you, I mean, the reason, again, these are not there by accident, these are things that are there, because they remind us significant role that God gave man to be a spiritual leader, to be accountable for his family, to love and lead. Now, men, my goal is not to beat you down today, but it is to call you up because we have a responsibility, and most of our culture has called men down, and it's time to call men up to lead and to love and to serve, take responsibility, be accountable for what God has called us to, and he's going to empower us to do it because he's not doing it out of condemnation, he's doing out of grace and love. But what happens in this moment is so interesting because I've seen this play out in my life time and time again. And I'm sure you probably have too. The Holy Spirit works, brings conviction, right? And then there's this process of, do I want to receive that or not? And it goes into negotiations. 
in this story, God says, where are you, Adam? And of course, he knows where he is. But he says, uh, did you guys eat the, the fruit I told you not to? And what does Adam do? He's very manly. He's very godly. He steps up and says, the woman you gave me, she did it. Right? I mean, seriously, think about that. Uh, the woman you gave me. He didn't just stop at even the woman. He had to go all the way to say, I'm accusing you, God, of this. If you hadn't given me the woman, I would not have eaten that fruit. It's another way to say it. Sin has a way of deceiving us, doesn't it? And once it gets there, that pride of life wells up, and it is so hard for us. Now, some of you are better than others at owning sin. Maybe in your, you grew up in a home where you owned what you did and you sought forgiveness for that. I feel like this was not something I did well, not something I grew up doing well, something I'm still learning to do is to acknowledge and own sin and to work through that by, by starting from that place of, God, you're right, I did it. I acknowledge that, I confess that. But in this passage, that's not what happened. So Adam says, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. And then the Lord asks the woman, and what does she say? It was Satan. It was a snake, right? It was, the devil made me do it, right? For those of you that remember the Flip Wilson quote back in the day. A lot of you are like, I don't know who that is. That's good. Um, the devil made me do it, right? This, this snake that, that was there did it. And, and the, the, the point is this, is that we can move from self-deception uh, self to self-rule to self-indulgence and then into self-righteousness. Because here's the truth about us. One of the things that undermines our marriages is that we always see ourselves as more righteous than we really are and our spouse as less righteous than they really are. And so we start to, to really undermine the glory and the goodness that God intended for marriage because we have this view of ourselves that we feel like we have to uphold, that we have to manage, if you will. If marriage was created for intimacy and oneness, image management will rip that to shreds. It will make it virtually impossible, where we feel like we always have to deflect and defend. All these issues, as you notice, if you just read through the story, they point to self at the center of all things. And the essence of sin is this self-reliance and self-exaltation. I mean, that's it's another way to say my way over God's way. It's self-reliance and it's self-exaltation. And in this rebellion against God, and then the expo it begins first with the rebellion against God, but then it always ends in exploita exploitation of others. And so if you're in a marriage, that's what happens. You rebel against God, and then you exploit and you hurt the people around you, namely your spouse who's the closest and has direct access, and you have direct access to their heart. So marriage is so hard because this is the backdrop in which we find ourselves. Is this encouraging? <laughs> I, I have to keep, you know, maybe this is again why I felt so heavy some this week, is just the weight of sin. It's brutal. And here's the question we have to deal with. It's, will we buy the lie? Will we live in light of that lie and let the deception go deep into our hearts and think that we are a better ruler than God 
think that we know how to fix our marriage better than God. I mean, John Mark Comer, I've quoted him a couple of times in his marriage series already, but he says, will we buy the lie? Will we go our own way thinking we know better than God, flip a coin and hope for the best? Or will we listen, not to the voice of the serpent, but to the creator? Will we believe that God's way is the best way? He is the creator and he's good. And we said last week that reality is God is the creator of marriage. He dreamed it up. He graciously gifted it with us, gifted it to us, and we get to be the beneficiaries of it. And so I think if we want to grow marriage, we've got to listen to him. We've got to learn from him. And while there is no book of marriage, like we like we've said several times, there is this incredible story of redemption and grace and goodness. And there's this gospel truth that is operationally so critical to a marriage that looks and and feels like what God intended. You guys, we have a real enemy who is the devil, and we have a real enemy who is the the worldly way in which the, the devil has influence in. We even have an enemy in our own flesh, those desires that come against us. But we also have hope. You know, the, the, way that, um, the way that Paul Tripp in his book, and those of you that are going through the marriage book, just want to make a plug again. Um, this is a great resource for you to work this stuff out practically. And he does a great job of helping us self-diagnose. Like, yeah, the biggest problem in my marriage is me. The biggest problem in my marriage is me. My heart, my selfishness, my pride. Um, and yes, my spouse, as amazing as she is, she can sin, and she can sin against me, and it can hurt, and I can, but my response is my responsibility, right? And, and the reality is, is until people in a marriage actually draw a circle around themselves and say the, the problem's in here, then we will continue to do that whole blame-shifting thing. We'll continue to, to defend and deflect, and we won't actually get anywhere. But it's us taking personal responsibility for our sin. Um, and so I, I, um, I want to remind us today that we have freedom to own the sinfulness of our hearts. It might, might sound really weird to say it that way, but, but the reason I'm saying it that way is because we actually have a God who has made a way for us to not be defined by our sin any longer and not be enslaved to it any longer. He actually has made a way for us to be victorious over our sin and to be defined with a completely new identity. No longer as just a sinner, but actually as a child of God. Created in his image with this potential because he lives in us to actually love sacrificially. Like he loved us. The greatest Issue might be me in my marriage, but the greatest hope in our marriage is God. And so with all the tips and tricks to try to improve marriage, what I need, what you need, is God to show up. We need him, which means I actually have to get on my knees and pray and cry out, God, help me. One of the things that's always stunning to me is when I talk to couples who are struggling and they say, we're really struggling in marriage. We're really not just, with, things aren't clicking. We have a lot of conflict. We can't get on the same page. One of the first questions, and this was taught to me from a mentor, and it makes so much sense, but the first question to ask is, 
hey, do you guys pray together at all? And you would be stunned to know how many couples never pray together. And I'm not saying that in some sort of shame or guilt or, you know, condemnation if if you're not doing that right now. But let me tell you, if you want to grow in oneness, pray together. Pray. Begin to pray and cry out together. And it doesn't have to be an hour-long prayer, but just simply begin to pray together. And God, There is power when a, when a husband and wife come together in prayer. God will meet you in that. God will minister to you in that in a way that not, there's not a sermon, there's not a podcast, there's not a book or a resource that's going to fix what God can fix. What he's going to reveal, how he's going to work, scriptures he's going to bring you to, that are personal to your marriage and to the oneness and the intimacy that he desires for you. In fact, if you're single, I always tell singles that are headed into marriage to be very careful how much they pray together in private because prayer is so intimate. It draws you together. Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. If you've ever prayed with someone, there is an intimacy that comes in praying with them. And it actually makes it hard on some of the other physical purity pieces because there is a genuine connection that comes as we work in the spirit together. So we have to be careful in that sense, singles, just as a a heads up, but also that for you as married couples, pray. Pray together. It's the, the simple little phrase, you know, couples that stay together pray together. Or maybe couples that pray together stay together. Remember that, Aubrey? But here's the thing. If two spouses each say, this is Paul Tripp's words, if two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. And when we come to pray, we say, God, I'm not going to try to pray to fix my my wife. I'm going to actually pray for you to fix me, for you to grow me. Um, We were laughing because the other night, just a little pulling back the curtain in the shock house. Our kids were struggling, and we were struggling, and it was the end of the day, and we were all tired, and uh, we pray before bed with all of the, the kids at night, and and uh, sometimes I'm guilty, I admit, I'm just guilty of like, I just pray what I'm thinking and feeling, whether it's, uh, you know, it can come across kind of preachy, um, if you can imagine that. And, uh, but I was really praying, because my heart was not in a good place with our kids at the moment. Um, they, you know, they, they weren't really listening to their mom, and I was getting frustrated. And so as I was praying, I was praying about my heart, but somehow my wife thought I was praying about her heart. That is not good. <laughs> so I was praying about my sinfulness, but she was taking it for hers, and so the next 12 hours didn't go as well <laughs> until we figured this out. <laughs> um, those are the moments where you're like, okay, like, uh, like we we got to be open and honest, and we got to work through some of that stuff. So as you pray, just remember, you're not praying at someone. You're praying to, to God together, right, and confessing your sin and confessing your struggles. But here's, here's, here's the deal. Like, some of us in this room, we need to get really honest. I mean, I just, just a little glimpse behind the scenes. Like, Jade and I, our marriage is, is so much further along the path than where it was when we started this journey. Praise God for that, right? But we still have a long way to go. We have a lot of issues to work through. I still have plenty of sin in my heart that God is working out in me. I still have selfishness and pride and a struggle to, to own sin and to, and to not defend or deflect when she brings something to me. 
man, but God is gracious and he's good, he's merciful. And I thank him for marriage and how he's shaping me through it. And when we look at the story of Genesis chapter 3 today, the goal is not to say, man, I can't believe that Adam and Eve are that dumb. The goal is to say, God, how is that in me? And how are you trying to free me from that foolishness, right? How can, how can I be, be more aware that that's my tendency to, to think that I can rule my own life and I've got it better than you and that just to do what I want and think there's no consequences? And like, yeah, we, God wants to set us free. And so um, to stop in the middle of just saying we have a lot of problems would be the similar to, to going to Romans 6.23 that says, for the wages of sin is death. That's a terrible way to, you know, wages of sin is death, the end. You're all sinners, there's no hope, goodbye, right? That would be terrible, but that's not where that verse ends, and that's not where the Bible ends is in Genesis 3. Praise God for that, right? Three chapters in, we're at the world broke because people decided they wanted to be God instead of letting God be God. But the rest of Genesis or Romans 6.23 says, yeah, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The work of Jesus is what we desperately need because the gospel, this good news about Jesus, it's not good advice, it's good news. And today we've looked at the bad news that we are broken in our sin as human beings. But we have good news that there is victory over sin in Christ that the work of Jesus is not without power to overcome, that he's our rescuer from sin and a redeemer for our marriage. Yes, our natural default is sin. But if we are in Christ, we are new, and our deeper desire is to follow Christ's example of sacrificial love. We have been gifted the Holy Spirit, God's empowering presence in us, to defeat the self-deception and practice self-denial to defeat self-rule and practice self-surrender, to defeat self-gratification and practice self-control, to defeat self-righteousness and experience the freedom of God's gracious salvation that we couldn't earn. Like when that starts to happen, marriages will be transformed. My plea with you today is to get honest. This past week I sat in a room with about 40 pastors from around the city of Austin, greater Austin area, and we were having a conversation about marriage. And in the conversation about marriage, uh, some of my good friends that we've known for over 20 years were sharing a journey of they've been working with marriages in the Round Rock area. And through the process of them sharing, they shared that over the, the time of the last seven years of doing marriage ministry, they've had seven pastors on their staff get a divorce. And I was just heartbroken. I mean, we've known of that story, but even just reminded and hearing it again. And, and I, I was just curious, like, what are the, the, the factors to that? And I think one of the biggest factors, and there, there are a number, but one of the biggest factors is that those pastors, they were more concerned about their image on a platform than they were about the reality of their sin that they needed to be confronted with. And so they portrayed a certain image of how things look, but they wouldn't get honest about what was really going on behind closed doors. Now, God is gracious and redemptive, and he can, he can do something in all that mess, but right now there's a lot of brokenness around their lives. 
And sadly, because of their spiritual leadership role, there's a lot of people who their faith was shaken. And of course, like, who's this person who's singing these worship songs on the stage leading us? And now the next moment I find out that, that they're not the same person at home with their kids in their life. And I just want to say to you guys, first, as, a, as just a man and as a, a pastor, like, my prayer is that I would never get to a place where I just play the game and present an image. And just to be on a platform and say, hey, everything's great, when it's not. We try to be as honest and open as we can. But if we want to get, if we want our marriages, and if we honestly, it's way beyond marriage, but if we want to experience the life God has for us, we have to get honest. We have to get vulnerable. We have to get real in community. And praise God when we do, and he shows up. Not to smack us around, but to graciously help us and lead us. And I would be foolish to think that there's not some people in this room who God is calling you today to get honest and to be vulnerable, to be real with somebody. Say, you know what? We, we act like we've got it all together. We don't. And by the way, nobody does. So we serve a gracious God. We serve a Savior who, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of God we follow. And so we desperately need him to show up in our lives. Let's pray. Father, um, gosh, I personally just know that I can avoid the hard sometimes. Um, and I can, I can kind of think like Adam and Eve, I can hide from you. Thank you that it's impossible to hide from you. You see and you know. Thank you also that you don't just see and you know, but you pursue. And God, I'm going to look around this room. Um, Father, I just pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that are in here today, that God, that you would stir and you would work and you would bring freedom and you would bring help. Like, God, I, I know because I know my own heart, there, there are addictions at work in this room that are undermining trust in marriage. There are patterns of behavior, maybe even generational patterns of behavior that are crushing these relationships. Um, but thank you, God, that that is not the final word. Thank you that you are a rescuer and you are a redeemer. You're a reconciler. Thank you that you are a healer. So I pray across this room that, God, you would continue to encourage and, and build up and, and even set free um, every person in this place. And this, again, this is obviously so much bigger than just marriage. But we cannot, cannot, cannot experience marriage the way you intended as long as we try to do it our way. So, God, I continue to pray you bring freedom and hope and redemption. And um, I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.